Good morning. Um, our Sunday school lesson is Our Need for Truth, Part 2. We're going to be reading 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6 this morning. And part of our discussion is being picked up from what we discussed last week at the end of our time together. And I'm going to be reading a few quotes, but we're going to start with uh, this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who is in presence and lowly among you, but by being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we war not according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So the part that I want to focus on this morning and and picking up with what we talked about last week um, has to do with what he says in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Then in verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ. So last week we started a a lesson called Our Need for Truth. And we spent a good bit of time establishing what we mean by truth, what is the source of it, the nature of it. And one of the things that we pointed out that we said is not truth is um, something that's subjective, like our feelings or what we even sometimes what we think. And I want to read a quote to you, and I want to see, um, maybe by nodding of heads or raising hands, I suppose you could stand up if you'd like, um, but I'd like to see how this resonates with you um, and, and how this seems to speak to this idea of truth being subjective if it's based on how I feel. Uh, this is a quote, uh, not my own writing. My own desires can mess up my reasoning, for I can rationalize practically anything I want to be true. Once my passion gets involved, my reason, unassisted by God's grace, has a snowflake's chance in a blast furnace to hold on to truths already gained. Does that sound true? Or is that only for certain people who are highly emotional? Everybody. Everybody. I, I think that's right, Hayward. Everybody. Once, especially the part that says, once my passions get involved, I have a snowflake's chance and a blast furnace of being able to hold on to truth that I've already gained. If my emotions get involved, if my feelings get involved, it's very likely that I won't be able to see straight, is what this author is trying to say. And that's the point that we were trying to make last week, that truth is not something that is personal in the sense that you have truth and I have truth, we all have truth, but yours can't touch mine and I can't speak to yours. Uh, That is not the nature of truth. And what Paul was telling the Corinthians here is that what we are fighting against, if there is a battle in the world that we live in, what we are fighting against is not the person on either side of the aisle. And I don't necessarily mean politically, but even, even use that, and especially in the church. 
The enemies that we fight are not other people. The enemies that we fight is, uh, well, what are they? Can we name some of the enemies we fight in the church? And again, no names of individuals. It's what I, I don't have those in mind. What are some enemies that we fight in the church? Pride. Pride. Complacency. Complacency. I think some might say liberalism, right? Any false doctrine that creeps in. But what is Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, 5, and 6? What is he saying that, that we're fighting against there? Anything that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. So that means that could be my own inclinations, it might, certainly my sinful desires, um, what I want to see out of a certain situation or group of people, what I want out of life. It's, uh, he says anything. And the weapons of our warfare are not things that you would go back into the shed or the closet and get, but these are things that the Lord has filled us with by His grace, by His Spirit, through His Word. Uh, so it's not anything different. You don't have to pray for a particular extra unction of the Spirit. We talked about this last week um, when we were speaking about how to engage. Uh, maybe you have a, a young person in your home or a grandchild who comes to you and says, I really want to go have this spiritual experience. I think this is necessary for me to grow, and I really do want to pursue this. And so we talked about, well, how do we, how do we go about this? Is this a feeling? Is this something that you, you feel that you need or you've seen other people have, and so you just want to have that yourself? And we talked about how to even have that discussion. Um, how, do you, how do you go to a young person? Or to someone else with whom you don't agree on a particular matter of truth and have that discussion. Uh, does anybody remember some of what we talked about there at the end? Um, Julie gave us, I think, some helpful ways to engage in the conversation. Um, and I made a comment that I'm a little bit more of a black and white type of person. So if somebody says to me something that doesn't level with truth, and I don't mean my truth, but level with the truth of Scripture, I'm a little black and white and would just say, well, no, that doesn't compute. End of discussion. Let's move on to the next thing. Um, Julie, would you mind repeating what you said for the for the sake of the group? Yeah, so often, and I'll put it in this kind of picture, is that we look down, say, especially younger students, we look down on them and we only see the problem. Versus mm-hmm. looking up and seeing an opportunity. An opportunity Mm-hmm. So by showing respect to them, being curious, like and asking questions about why, why are you thinking this way? What's brought you to this place? So yeah. just again, kind of starting off first with curiosity. So I'm picking on the idea of uh, something in worship. So um, I grew up with some folks who were more of a, in a charismatic bent. And they were particularly trying to go after a specific spiritual experience on a Sunday morning. They wanted to experience it themselves. They thought it was important for other people to be involved in that. And they really wanted to have that. To them, that was the mark of being Christian. um, To be truly spiritual. Only the nominally people just show up and are there every Sunday. Um, But those who really do engage with God are the ones who have this particular very um, ethereal experience on their own with the Lord and it should be evident for other people to see 
And so I was probably much more of what I described to you a few moments ago than what Julie just described of asking questions and being curious and wanting to engage. Even though I did have some discussion, to me it was a matter that was black and white. So I don't, I don't see that in the scriptures. There's not something that we're supposed to be pursuing in the Holy Spirit. Um, certainly we all should be filled with the Spirit. But trying to go find another experience It's, to me, looking at the scriptures, that's not based in God's word. And so um, we talked about exchanging a word in our culture, and this has happened um, many, many years before now. It's been happening for quite some time. Exchanging language for I think or I believe something to be true to I feel um, that this is true or I feel that it's wrong. Um, And that's... You wouldn't associate that even a hundred years ago. You wouldn't have associated that language that way. It just wasn't the case. Either something is true or it's not. But my particular feeling about it um, doesn't validate or invalidate it. So I wanted to read another quote to you from the book that I mentioned last week. This is on a different topic than what we discussed last week. But it's related to what we have been talking about just now. Um, I'm going to... And again, it's called The Coming Evangelical Crisis, written by John Armstrong with contributions from John MacArthur, R. Kent Hughes, R.C. Sproul, Michael Horton, and uh, Albert Moeller. And this was written back in the 1990s. So this is when it talks about the coming evangelical crisis. I made this comment last week. Um, We're living in the time of this evangelical crisis. It's no longer coming. It's here. It's in the church even. Um, And maybe one other comment before I read this, that as we think about um, engaging our culture with the truth, I mean specifically engaging our church culture. I am not just thinking about engaging those outside the walls of the church because I think some of the things um, that he's talking about here are things that have already crept in and have roots in the church. This isn't just something that's an idea that's floating out there that if you go in the wrong classroom, it might jump on you. This is something that each of us, because we live in the culture that we live in, this is something that we're carrying with us. And I believe that this is part of what we are warring against in ourselves. As we look at the scriptures, we should see the standard of who God is. And as we use the scripture as a mirror, as God's word says that it is, it shows us things in ourselves that we see, this is not who I am. This is, I'm not meeting this standard. Um, you should see that. That's part of the nature of the work of scripture in us by God's spirit. So let me uh, read just a little bit. Um, in, and I'm on page 40. I'd be happy to share the, the book with you if you'd like to read it. Um, let me... Okay, here we go. I'm on the bottom of page 40. It says, um, Evangelical consultants urge churches to conduct user-friendly worship services intended to be non-offensive to the secular attender. The emergence of praise worship has combined a much-needed return to simple biblical praise with the repetition of mantra-like phrases of questionable theological content. Although worship may be contemporary and remain authentic, it cannot be seeker-oriented and remain true to the biblical concept of genuine worship. True worship focuses on God, our gracious, loving, holy Lord, the Trinitarian God who delights in the praises of his people. The marks of true worship include the singing of hymns, the reading of scripture, the prayers of the people, the observance of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and the preaching of the word. By this measure, much of what takes place in evangelical churches is anything but worship. The issue here is not style, but content. Encouraging signs of renewed interest in worship are apparent, but there are mixed. these are mixed with unsettling signs of theotainment, 
coined his own phrase there, theotainment in the guise of evangelical worship, but worship is not the only issue of concern. Um, and then he goes on to explain some other things. He talks about church discipline and the lack of it in many churches and accountability among the membership. So I'm, I don't want to pick on any particular church. I don't think that's helpful. Uh, but what I, I want to see and just kind of pick at here is there are some specific matters of truth that were spoken about here by Dr. Armstrong that I want to point out as we talk about truth. Um, can you think about what he said regarding worship? What was the most important part of worship, according to Dr. Armstrong? Was it the content or the style? The content of the worship. Um, So if we decided, if your elders got together and we decided that we're just going to take out prayer, you know, it's part of our service in three different places, it takes up at least ten minutes um, every Sunday, and everybody could just get out of here a lot sooner if we didn't have prayer. What would be the basis for wanting to say, excuse me, I have a a problem with that? The Bible commands it. Truth, right? The the objective Bible-based truth. The Bible says we should do it. So to take it out for the sake of convenience or anything else is not acceptable, right? That's a a style and a, a preference, and content. I want to get out sooner. Or we just don't like so much prayer. It's kind of dead air time. I can't really engage in that. Right? Those are significant matters. So if we... But I think it's significant to talk about it because if we're not able to be together on that, then when we get to other matters, like talking about how our children are uh, taken care of in the church or other things, it would be very easy to only be influenced by what I think uh, or how it makes me feel. Or how I experience it. And those things are important, but they cannot be primary. Right? And, and I realize I'm talking about a touchy thing, but it seemed like something at least significant enough that you would pay attention to what I'm saying, but also maybe not so controversial that we wouldn't be able to have a, a discussion on it. Um, some other things about truth. Uh, that I wanted to to just discuss. Last week, and, and we got to this, we talked about uh, God's word being true and authoritative, uh, that it's to be esteemed above human opinion, um, even above emotion or someone's own personal experience. And Dr. Armstrong talked about the difference between Scripture being authoritative, uh, that it is our standard, that we don't step away from it. Our own catechism asks the question, um, what is the only rule of faith and practice that God has given? Anybody? The Word of God. Not the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Shorter Catechism. It's the Word of God. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms, along with the Scriptures, make up the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, So those things together. But what binds the conscience of men and women is the Word of God. Not your session, not the bulletin, uh, the Bible. That is what is to rule your conscience. So in matters of conscience, I can't even bind your conscience, right? That's, that's true. I'm, I am not the walking Bible, so it has to be the scriptures. Um, so I also want to talk about truth this morning related to who God is. Um, one of the articles that I read that was actually quite good on this, um, and this was a recent article, uh, was that truth was given and made in the image of God. 
And I find that to be very intellectually satisfying as we think about the nature of truth, that truth is something that is um, all for all time, for all people, everywhere, without exception. And I know that sounds very exacting and, and almost kind of limiting, but isn't that the nature of truth? That it applies to all people everywhere for all time? So can you think about anything that we do as a church family on Sunday morning that is something that we do that's orthodox, but maybe doesn't apply for everybody everywhere for all time? And not specifically anything during our worship service. Just something on Sunday morning. Well, and I realize Lebanon is home for you. But when we came, one of the things that stuck out to me the most is that the church family fellowships outside after the worship service. And not every church does that. Um, There is a mad scramble at a lot of churches to see who can leave the parking lot the fastest and who can get to the restaurant or get to the, the kitchen table the soonest. And so it's something that's innate. It's built into who you are. But if you went to another church and they didn't do that, would they be an unorthodox body of Christ? No. No, they wouldn't be. If they didn't have a call to worship, would they not be orthodox? Yes, they would be unorthodox because the Lord causes people to worship. It's not the session. It's not Lebanon Presbyterian Church. As we look at the scriptures, we call it the call to worship. We are called to come and worship the living God. It's not something we do to ourselves. It's not something that even your session does. It's the Lord calling us to worship. So Westminster Confession of uh, Faith in the Shorter Catechism, uh, question number five says, and this is a, a statement about truth. Are there more than one God? This is question number five. No, there is only but one living and true God. That is an absolute statement. And just to, to be sure we're on the same page about what an absolute statement is, I'm saying that that is absolutely true and that there's no room for wiggle. You cannot relativize that statement to say, well, that's true for you, Pastor Matthew, but for me, I'm choosing between maybe the God of the Bible and something else. If that's an absolute statement that we believe to be absolutely true, then even when we're interviewing people for membership as a session, that's something that's critical, right? That we unite ourselves around the truth of God's word and who he is and how he's revealed himself. So if that's true, then we don't budge on that. Right, And so what does that mean in a church like Lebanon where very many of us are family? What does that mean about our commitments to the scriptures? That means that our commitment to the scriptures comes before even our commitment to our family. Right? That's a very high commitment, but it's a significant one. So if we were to differ in our family on something related to the nature or truth of scripture, where does our allegiance lie according to the scriptures? Where should it lie? With the scriptures themselves. And certainly out of love and affection for our family, we would say, this is significant. And I love you. But this is an area where we have to have sit down and have a serious conversation. Because though I love you with all of my heart, this is significant. And you are walking out of accord with God's word. Now to make a statement like that to anybody, including family, is a strong one. But that's the truth. Right? And that's hard. And and there are a lot of families who walk away from one another because of matters like this. But that's significant. And it, it is important. 
One of the things about truth, we, we talked about last week that it's subjective. We've talked about this morning that it reflects who God is and the nature of his person to us, that truth was made in the image of God. But it, it's also revealed in the person of Jesus. If you think about how Jesus was revealed in the Bible, he said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for those of you who teach English or who are English um, aficionados, when you use the definite article the, it is significant. It is different to use an indefinite article. I am a way, a truth, a way of life. Jesus didn't say that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The definite article, meaning there is not another way to go, right? And we believe that. We hold that to be absolutely true. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus offered in truth. He offered people to have life in truth. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, all of you, and I will give you rest. And what does that mean about rest then? I think at least one thing it means that there will not actually be true soul rest for anyone apart from Christ. There won't be. You can have all the vacations, spend all the money, do everything you would like to do to make life less stressful and no anxiety. But you will not have rest apart from Christ. I think that's what he's saying. It absolutely does mean that you're not going to be able to have any rest in trying to keep the law. That's who he was addressing. People who were weighed down with the the cares of wanting to please God and be obedient to his word. But absolutely, rest is something that also translates into your soul. And I think Jesus is saying there, you're not going to have that kind of rest apart from him. In John chapter 16, Jesus talked about the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit in the believer. That the Holy Spirit's job, part of his job, being sent to believers, was to guide and lead them into the truth. That he would testify internally to each of us to the truth. So let me, let me ask you then, and maybe we can have some discussion about this. If each of us as believers, the Bible says when, when Jesus promised that he would fill his people, that he would comfort them by sending his spirit to them. And that that would be better than having Jesus in front of them. Than having Jesus right beside them to walk with them or talk with them to go through certain situations together. So if that's true... And he said it, so it's true. Then maybe we can talk a little bit about what that means about guiding us into truth. And I just want to talk about a few of the attributes of how that's done. Um, as we as we walk through situations together. And this could be something that you've experienced in your home. Um, I can comment on a few things related to our session um, and leadership in the church. But what can we talk about or how would you describe some of the characteristics of knowing when you are being led by God's Spirit into the truth? What are some things that are immediate markers that would be absolutes, that would be true for everyone, not just for you? Pam said that it's got to line up with Scripture. It has to agree with Scripture. What else? What about some of um, how how you respond to others in conversations being led by God's Spirit? Um, 
How does it how does it impact your your speech or your demeanor? Jason said seasoned with grace. Um, I would say with humility, right? There's going to be a humbleness about explaining the truth. I don't mean being timid or or even giving any, but you explain it or discuss it in a way that's charitable towards others. One of the things that I, I read, I want to commend another book to you. Um, if, this, if these topics are things that are um, of significance to you, um, Carl S. Truman uh, has written a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He's um, on faculty at Grove City College, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And one of the things that he discusses in the introduction to his book is that he hoped the way that he described his opponent's uh, points of view about the nature of truth and philosophy and how uh, we have come to believe what we believe is true in our society today. One of the things that he hoped is that any of his opponents who read his book would read it and recognize their own point of view. And isn't it so easy when you're having a discussion with someone about the nature of something being true or not that you describe it in the worst possible light uh, with the, the most extreme sorts of opinions and not favorably? Not the way Carl Truman talked about it. Uh, so can we talk about that for just a moment? Is that necessary? Is it necessary to do that? To paint your opponent in the most, most positive light and describe their point of view in a favorable way as well. Is that significant? And think of it not outside necessarily, but think about it in, in the church. Yes. You start from you assume the other one has the best intentions. I mean, not that that will be determined, but at mm-hmm. least you start And what is it that we believe about, and this is another absolute in the church, but what is it that we believe about every person who is a member at Lebanon Presbyterian Church? Basic level assumption. They're a believer. They're a believer. So if we start there, then they're a part of the eternal family of God that we will spend all of eternity with. So there is no one here that we're fighting against that we're hoping to expel out of the kingdom. Um, and I, I realize, yes, we could be talking about significant heresy or something else, but I'm, I'm not thinking right now, at least, in terms of very extreme cases. But I do think this could be applied even in how our presbyteries think about and discuss the matters that we talked about a couple of weeks ago in our General Assembly report, shouldn't you expect that your teaching elder and any ruling elders who go to Presbytery next year would be able to articulate and argue favorably against those who will want to support keeping certain statements out of the Book of Church Order? Yes. I shouldn't get up there with my hair on fire and stomping and screaming and and making claims about somebody that aren't necessarily true simply because I want to win an argument. Right? That we shouldn't conduct ourselves that way in the church. Uh, but very much, that's what happens, what we see happening in the culture. Whoever's the loudest or makes the most extreme statement about the opponent, or whoever can seem the most true, which is not actually true, um, those are the ones who are believed. Right? And we ought to acknowledge that in ourselves that many times what we take to be true 
um, or how we're influenced to believe that something is true uh, may or may not actually be based on facts or evidence, but simply how it made us feel. Um, if somebody talks about being a being a, a gun-toting um, conservative country person, there's going to be a certain affinity in many of us because that's how we see ourselves. But if they seem like a, a northern Yankee that's a little bit of maybe a liberal, maybe, then you get a you get a little bit of a bent in your in your in your bonnet, don't you? Well, I'm just waiting to hear what they have to say or bring up the next topic. And it's so easy that that's not based in truth. It's just based in how I feel or what I think. And that's just not good enough when we're talking about the the matter of real truth in life, is it? How I feel or what I think, it's just not good enough. And I am am jealous for our young people. Um, And I, I went back and forth myself on this a few times the last couple of weeks talking about this that I think this is something very significant for our young people to learn how to engage in conversation that can be able to rise above the level of the emotion and everything else that might be in a conversation or a topic and be able to see and think clearly and be able to speak clearly. And it's hard to do when someone's yelling and screaming and stomping and has their hair on fire. It is quite difficult. But that is the nature of the conversation when we're talking about truth. Is it not? Yes. Yeah. Julie just said that it's not always who says it the loudest, but who can say it the best, who can talk the best. Um, that's that's not always the case. And I can tell you for sure there are times, even in our, our session meetings, when there are certain elders who are just not going to be vocal. But when they speak, you absolutely better be listening. And they may not say it long, so you better pay attention. But when they speak, they're speaking clearly and simply the truth. And I've seen that on both sessions that I've been on. Not everyone is vocal the same way. But everyone in that session meeting has the same voice. They have the same, they should expect the same respect and deference from their brothers in Christ. That's the way it should be. I want to get to, in the last 10 minutes that we have, I want to get to an issue that we spoke about last week and also the week before in our General Assembly report. And I want to read something. It's a little bit long, but I I want to, in our our church here, I want to be able to speak to matters of identity um, and truthfulness because I think these two things in our culture have been made to um, what I think or feel about my identity is also true. Um, and when I say identity, I'm speaking about what Paul said, um, that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Uh, so everything that was about me, sinful and not glorifying God, all of those things, Paul says, have been nailed to the cross, that Christ died for them. I have died and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. So all of those things have changed about me. So I, I want to read this. This is uh, from a recent article. Um, Our true identity is not found in our sin. It says, The blessedness of Adam and his creation makes plain what humankind's identity as creatures ought to be. The fundamental identity of every man, woman, and child is that of a divine image bearer. That is what human beings were created to be. What that means for us today is that our identity is not found in our sin. 
Often the most difficult part of turning away from a particular sin that has infiltrated your life is the feeling that in rejecting that sin, you are rejecting part of who you are. You think that if you surrender your bitterness against that person who did that thing, you will be surrendering part of who you are. If you seek to distance yourself from a particular vice or addiction that has been part of your life for so long, for so many years, you will be setting aside a part of yourself. If you seek gossiping, if you curb your natural inclinations in order to avoid offending others, if you scale back your desires in order to increase the peace of Christ's church or to send the gospel forward into the world, you suppose that you're sacrificing your very own identity. You are not. You are sacrificing your sin. You are sacrificing a distortion of your identity in order to find your true identity as an image bearer who dwells with and worships the God that made you. None of us can excuse our sin by saying dismissively, this is just the way God made me. All men and women do have particular and different sins seemingly stitched into their fallen identity. All men and women. All men and women, he says. But those sins, even if they are present by nature and not by choice, are not part of humanity's fundamental identity. God has made us for communion with himself and communion with his people. That is where we are to find our identity. Do not sacrifice who God made you to be in order to cling to what sin has distorted you to become. You were meant for holiness. Embrace it, not your sin. That is a, I would say that's a minority opinion today. Even in, in the church, there are many who say that's just not true. That's sad to me. And I realize that's a feeling. And I, I do mean that on purpose. But it is sad to me that there are people who believe that they do need to hold on to what Christ has crucified. What has been paid for on the cross, I am wearing as a badge of honor. And that I have to carry with me. There are some who say that's what makes us relevant as the church to a seeking world, to a sinful world. That if you can't identify with them in some way in, in the gutter with them, then they don't really feel like they can have a part in the church because they don't really fit in. But isn't that the nature of our sin? It has put us away from God. One of the things that uh, we, we talked about is that what we lost in the fall was our closeness and relationship with the Lord and with one another. So absolutely, our enemy, the devil, would love for us to continue to further that separation by not wanting to totally embrace what Christ won for us on the cross. So can we talk about this for just a few minutes? We have just a few minutes left. I, w- I wanted to talk about this in terms of laying things down and also picking up other things. Because what I read and what I hear this author saying, and I, I think I believe with what he's saying and I, that I agree. He's saying that every believer, for every believer, no matter how old or how young, how long you've been a Christian or how short, all of us should be laying certain things down so that we might pick up and lay hold of the identity we have in Christ. Is that true? Every believer, no matter how old, how long they've been a Christian, they should be repenting. That's a lifestyle that we should be living. I think if that were, this is my opinion, if that were more evident in the church, 
especially in discussions where there might be disagreements. If that were more evident in the church, I think it would be disarming to some of the feelings we have about what seems like people judging us when they don't agree with us. What do you think about that statement? Not moralism? Yes. Okay. I think that's some of the difficulty even, and this is a a personal aside of like 10 seconds, 15 seconds, that's some of the difficulty of preaching even in the book of Ruth for me is because every passage you should see Christ in it, right? Every passage is about him. So to look at it and say, be a good Ruth or be an honorable Boaz, that's not enough. That's not enough. Um, there are good and honorable people in our culture. They are not the, the Savior who climbed up on the cross and died for us. Um, so I agree with you 100%. Um, I do think that if we sacrifice grace for legalistic moralism, we do a disservice to our church and don't preach the full counsel of God's word. It can't be legalistic moralism because that's not going to save us either. It can't be that. There must be grace. Yeah. And running through the conversation that needs to happen and having to say, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, we don't really talk about that. So, and that's not just, well, I'm repenting of my anger or I'm repenting of what I do when I get angry. Um, Jesus said, be angry and sin not. Um, He didn't say, don't be angry. Um, And there's a fine line there. And many of us cross it every day, right? That, that is true. But what Julie's talking about is not simply, um, well, golly gee, I'm a, I'm a sinner. But in areas where we have sinned against one another, to be able to go to them and say, look, I sinned. I was wrong. Takes courage and, and does take boldness and humility. It does. And if somebody comes and talks to you that way. If they're coming and confessing particular sins, particularly because something happened between you, um, I would say slow way down and listen. Uh, because I believe that's evidence of God's Spirit working in someone. And we should receive that with humility too. Right? Was somebody going to say anything? I, I'm sorry if I, if I did cut anyone off.
Well, just a couple more minutes. I, I want to point out maybe two other things, and then we'll pray. Next week, we're going to begin uh, in the Old Testament, in the in the book of Genesis. We're going to start looking at some case studies in the Old Testament, looking at the life of some of the, the patriarchs. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very hopeful that we'll keep this... Um, spine or backbone in mind as we think about looking at the Old Testament. We're just maybe for six weeks or so going to look at some some folks in the Old Testament. And one of the interesting things about it is that in God's Word, He doesn't take out the the things that might seemingly be black eyes or other things that that even the patriarchs did or what they believed that uh, weren't based in truth. He gives them to us uh, in the Word. We see real life, people making mistakes and messing up royally. Um, And I think that that should, in one sense, be encouraging to us that the Bible doesn't cover up our fallenness, uh, but it should exalt Jesus even more, that he could use sinners like them. He absolutely can use sinners like us if he chooses. So two other things. I believe that our world, and I do mean the world around us, but I do mean even the church as well, we absolutely need truth. And the reason I say this is because I believe our world is aching for it. It is aching for things to be true. Not everything can be relative and not everything can be captive to my feelings. And there is no such thing as my truth. There isn't. It's a phrase that's used. And what is it that we teach our children about what a fake is? A fake is something that's passed off as the real thing, the real McCoy, but it's not actually true. And you can spot a fake. There are certain things about it that you can spot. The Bible calls this being a hypocrite. And, and that's what Um, is at stake. I think that's why we need the truth. And lastly, because our world is missing it and it's backwards. We live in the upside-down world right now. What's right is wrong and what's wrong is right. And the Bible says very clearly, woe unto those who call evil good and good evil. That is a, a, a significant thing in God's sight, that things would not be true. That we can't say that the only way I can know something to be true is if I can experience it. Or if it really does um, mesh to how I've experienced life, that can't be the basis for truth. Um, It means that there is another standard outside of us, and we do have to submit to it. So as we look at God's Word and we think about the truth, I hope that these things have been encouraging to you. I'd be happy to share the two titles with you again. I have some other books that I'd love to commend to you. Um, David Wells, No Place for Truth, or The Courage to be Protestant. Both of those are very good books. Um, I found this one to be pretty good, The the Coming Evangelical Crisis. And then again, Carl S. Truman, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, um, which has been the most comprehensive so far that I've read. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word that it is true. I thank you for your people today that we are here together to worship you. And I pray, Lord, that we would worship you as your word says in spirit and in truth, that you would pour out your spirit on us as your people today as we gather to worship you, to raise up the name of our Savior. Lord, I pray that we would do so with fear and trembling coming into the presence of the living God. I thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate today, that we can celebrate being a part of your family, that you call us your sons and daughters. And, Lord, I do thank you for the way that you care for each of us and our families in a particular way. I thank you for the sunshine and for the rain that we've experienced this past week and how you do give us exactly what we need when we need it. In Jesus' name, amen.